Good to be back with you to see some familiar faces and to see also some, some brand new faces. We are just recovering right now. We had uh, our son and our three youngest grandchildren, Zach and Sam and Ben came with us. That's, that's nine and six and four. And uh, that was good, but um, they brought Chewy with them. Chewy is a five-month-old lab husky cross, and uh, it doesn't have any limitations on where it goes. So Chewy was at one time in the middle of our dining room table. Chewy was up there checking out what Terry was cooking, and it was a, a fun thing. We don't have an enclosed yard. We're, we're in a situation where we have a golf course behind us, but a lot of times they might not want a dog out on the golf course. So, so uh, it, w- it was an interesting time. We thank you. We thank Fort Collins, especially for Twin Silo Park. I mean, that was a lifesaver for us. Uh, Krista Bradney, I think, put that on Facebook, and we jotted that down. We said, we've got to have that place. So, so you bailed us out two days out of nine million days, but that was good enough. <laughs> um, you know, we're all in this adventure called life. It's an adventure because you never really know what's coming next. And today I want to talk about the adventure of loving your neighbor and how that fits into the priorities that we should have as followers of Jesus. If someone were to ask you, what is the single most important thing to do with your life? How would you answer? Have you thought about that? If you answered to love God, you'd be scripturally very correct. That would be right. You were put on this planet to be loved by God and to love him back. That's your number one purpose. Now, if someone were to ask you, what's the second most important thing to do with your life, how would you answer that? Would you know the answer? Jesus had an encounter with an expert in the law and that really highlights the answers to these two questions. The verses will come up on the board there, but uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The man wanted to know how to receive eternal life. That's what this was about. I don't think Jesus ever has an encounter with, with an expert in the law without an audience around him. And uh, the only one I know of that was absolutely private was when he talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But many times these people were asking legal questions to see how Jesus would answer them. And Jesus simply told him and now us to remember what the scriptures say. Basically, Jesus said the number one thing you're supposed to do every day is to get to know God a little better and learn to love him a little bit more. Then he said the second most important thing is that you're supposed to, uh, with your life, the, the second most important thing is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, with these two sentences, you can actually summarize the whole Bible what it says to do with your life. These are the two most important things. Number one, love God. Number two, love other people as yourself. Life's not really all about accomplishments. It's really about love. 
Notice it doesn't say just be nice and kind to people. It says, love others as much as you love yourself. Many of us don't do that very well, self-included. God wants you to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when Jesus united the concept of loving God with loving your neighbor, it was a revolutionary thing. These concepts are definitely present in the Old Testament, but the love of neighbor was not really recognized as the other side of the coin of love. Jesus was teaching something new, something revolutionary. These two principles are life principles that I accept. I'm constantly working on these things. But there's something else here that I really am struggling with. I never thought I'd struggle with this, but I am. Did you notice the question of the expert of the law? He asked, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's a national question. I grew up in a country with neighbors to the north and neighbors to the south. Now we're not sure about the Canadians and we're not sure about the Mexicans. We, we are a, a little bit of a, at a loss here. Do you know that some people who speak French live in Canada? Did you know that, Canadi that Canada geese are no longer Canadian? That's what I'm trying to learn. If you, if you post a picture of a Canada geese and call it a Canadian geese, all the photographers of the world will jump on you on, on, uh, on Facebook. Did you know that many people who look Mexican, whatever that is, are not from Mexico? Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor on Facebook? We could easily purge and limit our feed and choose our neighbors on Facebook. Democratic socialists are out. Freedom Party people are out. People who like dogs are out. People who like cats are out. LGBTQ people, they're out. Anybody who's not like me is out of my Facebook feed. Isn't it my right to choose my neighbor? Jesus doesn't specifically answer the question, but I'm convinced that his direct answer would be, everybody in the world is my neighbor. Now, because of travel and mission trips that I've done, I actually know by name neighbors in Canada, in Mexico, in the Navajo Nation, in Brazil, in Hungary, in Romania, in Israel, in Egypt. So to give us a model of neighbor love, Jesus told a story that might be the most famous story in the Bible. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. How many of you in this room first heard this story on flannel graph? Wow, I, you're actually a younger group than I thought would know that. That was an amazing technological thing when I was a kid, flannel graph. You took this board and you, you put a piece of flannel on it and then you put the characters on there and they stuck to it. It's amazing. Now, if you had a bad storyteller, they didn't stick, but usually they stuck to it. That's the way I heard the story first of all. This story is told over and over again in, in, in literature, in movies. It teaches what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It, it gives us a direct clue as to who our neighbor is. Here's the story, Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road 
And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his, and, and, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So in this story, which most of you are familiar with. We have a priest, we have a Levite. They're both religious leaders. And then we have a Samaritan. The actions and the reactions of these three characters help us to know who is our neighbor. And they also tell, tell us how to be a neighbor. These guys all travel the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. They come upon a guy that's been mugged. Now in Southern California terms, you would call this road the Jericho. Have, you, have any of you ever seen the Saturday Night Live skit? They make fun of Southern California people because all of our roads have a the in front of them. I grew up on the Pasadena Freeway. It's the first freeway in the world. And Terry grew up on the San Bernardino Freeway. If you're going east, it's the San Bernardino. If you're going west, it's the Santa Monica Freeway. Now it's the 10. My Pasadena Freeway, if you go toward the ocean, it's the San Pedro Freeway and it's called the 110. So I have, we've both been trying very hard to fit into Colorado and not call it the 25 or the 287. But we, we slip sometimes. But anyhow, that's what's going on here. And these three guys walk by and see this crime scene. Each one had a very different response. These are the same possible responses and attitudes that you and I have to our own neighbors. Here's three possible attitudes. The first one is keep your distance. Keep your distance. In fact, I'm gonna do something I forgot to do. There are pads of paper. There's one in that row over there, see it there, Stephanie? Yeah, I, I want everybody here to take, there's one right in this row. I put it by a purse, but nobody's occupying the purse. <laughs> I'd like everybody to just take the top paper off you, you can do whatever you want to do with one side of it, and I want you to reserve the back side for me, okay? So just hold that paper. If you, if you want to take notes, that's always a compliment. Feel free to do that. But the first response you can do with your neighbors is keep your distance. This is the attitude of the first traveler, the priest. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, or the Jericho, was all downhill. It, it's a mountainous road, has many curves, and it's very easy for robbers or thieves or gangs to hang out. It was not a safe place. So the first person to walk by this mugging victim is a priest. He just walks on by. He ignores him. This attitude really is don't get too close to people because they may need you. They may ask you for help. Keep all your relationships superficial so you don't have to get involved in their hurt and their pain keep your distance. So you keep your neighbors at a distance. You keep the people that you work with at a distance. You keep the people in your life at a distance. You don't want to be or have to be bothered by them. 
in Southern California, where we're from, this is a very common lifestyle. I found that it's a little harder in Colorado because more people talk to you, but you can still do the same thing. You know, it's very easy to develop traffic patterns to avoid all the people around us, even the people who live right next door to us. Most of us have these little gadgets called electric door openers. They, uh, they serve as isolation devices. You click it, you drive in, you click it shut, and you literally can close out the outside world. It's possible for me to go weeks if I wanted to and never talk to my neighbors. I may see them getting the mail or taking out the garbage, but that's really about it. So this is the attitude of keeping my distance, avoidance. A second attitude is be curious, but uninvolved. Be curious, but uninvolved. We see this in the second guy who is labeled as a Levite. After taking a closer look, the Levite goes back to the other side and walks on by the man. And by the way, a, a Levite isn't selling blue jeans. He, he may be wearing a denim robe, but a Levite is actually a, a temple assistant. So these first two guys are both very religious, very unloving. You could be religious, you can attend church every week, and still never love your neighbor as yourself. The Levite goes and he looks at the guy who's been beaten up. This is a pretty graphic scene. The guy is stark naked, he's beaten up, he's bloody, and he's laying on the side of the road. This Levite keeps on going. You know, as a society, if you look at us, if you look at the publications that are around us, we love to read about other people's pains. Many of the magazine covers that I read in the supermarket checkout line talk about somebody else's pain and struggles. I, I have to read them because you have to get some real news in your life, you know. So, so uh, and they must sell those things, so there must be something real about them, who knows. It's, it's very easy to talk about other people's problems, but still be apathetic about it. Both of these men were actually of the Levite class, people who served in the temple. They were people of privilege in that society, but they simply couldn't get beyond that privilege to help this man. There's a third attitude represented by the Samaritan, and that is to treat others how you want to be treated. Treat others how you want to be treated. You can treat the people in your neighborhood the same way you want to be treated. You can treat the people that you work with the same way you want to be treated. You can treat the people you go to school with in the same way you want to be treated. You can treat people that you deal with in the grocery store, in the post office, in other stores, in the same way you want to be treated. You can treat people the way that, who wait on you in restaurants or fast food places the same way you want to be treated. Or... You can keep your distance, be curious, and uninvolved. Jesus was an expert at making his point. So he picked the most despised type person to be the hero of the story. Samaritans were half Jews. They'd intermarried with Gentiles, and that led to the worship of foreign gods. Jews despised the Samaritans. If they were going north and south or south in their country, they they could easily go through Samaria, but they, they went around to the eastern side to avoid that place. So what does Jesus do? He makes the guy whom everybody else thinks is a half-citizen, not worthy of respect, and he makes him the hero. 
Jesus takes this despised Samaritan and said, that, that guy who really showed love, that's the, that Samaritan did the right thing. This was Jesus' not-so-subtle answer also to the who is my neighbor question. The principle was one Jesus taught before in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule. If you're going to learn to love your neighbor as yourself and become the most loving personal person possible, then you've got to do what this good Samaritan did here. Let me show you. First of all, be sensitive to somebody else's needs. You, you have to see what they need in life. This is the principle of sensitivity. Love is sensitive. Love begins with looking. Love starts in the eye. You can't meet a need until you see the need. It begins with observation, with the eyes. It begins with seeing. The Bible says in verse 33, Luke chapter 10, verse 33, but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. When he saw him. There are wounded people all around you and me. There are people around you who are wounded physically, financially, emotionally. Some are wounded relationally. They've been wounded by the economy. They're wounded by their parents and the way they grew up. They've been wounded by betrayal or wounded by grief. There are literally wounded people all around you. And when you don't see it, it's probably because you don't have your eyes open. You're not looking. Now, why is it that we don't see it? It's really not because you don't care. It's not because you're hard-hearted. The number one reason why you and I don't see the needs of people around us is busyness. We're too busy. It's busyness, literally, that kills kindness. The busier you get, the less loving you will be. Busyness kills love. You can't love your kids, you can't love your wife, you can't love your husband, you can't love your neighbor, you can't love the people you work with because you're too busy. You've got to slow down and see the needs of the people around you. So let's say you want your family to see America. You have to go slow across the country for them to see it. A little hard for them to see America if you're flying at 35,000 feet and 300 plus miles an hour. You see very little of the country. I've taken a lot of planes out of airplane windows, a lot of pictures out of airplane windows and I just toss them. They aren't, they aren't that interesting to me. If you want your kids to actually see what America's like, then slow down a little bit, take the train. The slower you go, the more you're gonna see. Or to really see the countryside, you take them in a car. Or if you're in Colorado, you get on a bicycle. But you can really see things the slower you go. On the adventure of life, the slower I go, the more I see. The faster I go, the less I see of the needs around me. The Good Samaritan was evident, evidently sensitive enough and moving slow enough to see the need. If you want to be sensitive like Jesus, you've got to slow down. Paul said this to his problem church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. He said, do not look only for yourselves. Look out for the good of others also. Do you ever look out for the good of others? 
Some people are just born sensitive. They, they seem to be naturally tuned into the emotions of others. The fact is, some of us are very sensitive, but most of us aren't. I'm not by nature a sensitive person. It's something I've had to learn. If you're not in some way sensitive in the ministry, you're going to lose your job. So I kind of learned that. I'm always asking God to give me spiritual radar. I pray something like this, Lord, help me to tune in. Help me to see people as you see them. Help me to be on the lookout for people who need help, for people who need encouragement, for people who need care. One nursing instructor said this, the essence of great nursing is anticipating people's pain. In other words, knowing they're going to have it before they get it. That's the essence of, great, of a great Christian too. It's the essence of a great parent also. Love starts with looking. It starts with your eyes. It starts with sensitivity. If you don't learn to see and be sensitive to the needs of others, you can't love them as yourself. A second thing that we see in the, in the Good Samaritan here is to sympathize with their pain, sympathize with another person's pain. You have to be sensitive to their needs. You have to see their needs. You have to sympathize with their pain. Sensitivity begins with the eyes, but sympathy actually begins with the heart. It's not enough just to see people's needs. Your emotions have to kick in. You have to kind of start to feel what they feel. I like Luke 10, 33 in the Message Bible. It says, a Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. I like that last phrase. His heart literally went out to him. First his eyes kick in, then his heart. How does that work? If sensitivity begins with the eyes, then sympathy begins with the ears. How do you and I become more sympathetic to our children? How do we become more sympathetic to our spouses? How do we become more sympathetic to our classmates or coworkers? How do we not just see the need, but also sympathize with it? The one word I'm looking for is listening, listening. It's that, that's the key to sympathy. The more you listen, the more sympathetic you'll be. The more you talk, the less sympathetic you'll be. You've got to learn to listen. So listening is active. Hearing is passive. You need to start praying, God, help me to listen carefully to the other people in my life. Look them in the eye. Listen closely. Hear what they're saying. Another thing about loving your neighbor that I see modeled in the, in the Good Samaritan is be spontaneous with your help. Be spontaneous with I think so. Yeah, here we go. It's always easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. So he takes the initiative. The other thing I notice about him is he uses what he has. In verse 34, it says he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. His use of oil and wine sounds like salad dressing to me. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that he, he had his lunch with him. So he's going to pour on oil and wine. He's using what he's got. He's not a doctor. He's not carrying a medicine cabinet. But he used the best, meth, best medicine of the day. He pours, oil, he pours wine on the wounds. That's a disinfectant. He uses the oil to soothe this guy's wounds. And then it says that he bandaged him. 
Where'd he get the bandages? He's not carrying band-aids with him. The guy had been stripped naked. What's he bandaging him with? He's using his own clothes. He's pulling off his Armani shirt and wrapping it around a bloody arm or a, or a leg that's ruining the shirt. He's using his own clothes as bandages. He's doing what it takes, using what he has. He doesn't wait for a professional. He can't call 911. He doesn't say, I'm unqualified to help my next door neighbor. No, he just does what he can. He uses what he has. And then we see that he moved against his fears. You're going to have to learn to do some things that you might fear the most in order to love your neighbor as yourself. When I went to Brazil, I, I was terrified. That's the first time I'd really been out of the country and, and doing what I had to do. And, and I, the first thing they did was send me home with a pastor who spoke no English. And I, and I was there. I, I think I ate everything he put in front of me uh, for, uh, for the morning meal because I didn't know how to say no in their language. But it, it, was a, it was a terrifying thing for me, but I'm glad I did it. He could have said, what if the, the robbers are still there? What if they rob me? That's a natural fear. He could have thought, what if I go over there and he rejects my help? I'm going to feel stupid. I'm going to feel dumb. I'm going to feel foolish about that. What if you walk over to your next door neighbor and say, well, let me help you with this, and they say, no, I don't need help. Now, if it's something technical, they would all say that to me now. They know I can't do it. You're going to feel really stupid. You may think, what if he asked me to do something I can't do? You've got to get over your own fears. You may wonder, if I, what if I go over there and, and I can't really help him, and his needs are so deep, and his wounds are so great, I can't help it. All of those fears could have gone through the mind of the Good Samaritan. But he took the initiative, and he helped. If you're going to be used by God in your neighborhood by the people who live next to you, if you're going to be used at work or at school or at church, you've got to move against your fear. I, I like the Proverbs 3, 27 through 28 in the Message Bible. It says, never walk away from someone who deserves help. Your hand is God's hand for that person. Don't tell your neighbor, maybe some other time, or try me tomorrow when the money's right there in your pocket. Hear that first phrase? Never walk away. In other words, don't walk away. Don't wait. Don't delay. Do kindness now. When someone loses a loved one, express your sympathy. When someone gets fired, call them. When someone has a miscarriage, show that you care. When somebody gets sick, help them now. Don't wait for the dust to settle. Don't delay. Do it now. The fourth thing that I see in him is, is to sacrifice whatever it takes. There's always a cost to kindness. Love costs. The cross is the greatest example we have of love. There's always a cost to kindness, and that was the greatest cost. It usually requires a sacrifice of time, of energy, of your schedule, and possibly your money. Genuine love is sensitive, it's sympathetic, it's spontaneous, it's sacrificial. Notice what the Samaritan does with the injured man. First of all, he puts him on his donkey. That means that he's walking, he's no longer riding. He takes him to a hotel, he nurses him through the night, he provides for his care, he pays the bill. He did all that he could to help. What did the Samaritan have to gain from this financially? Nothing, nothing. 
Jesus ends his story with this question in verses 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus says, go and do. Go and do the same thing. Hearing about love and doing it are two different things. God wants you to take the action to begin to do love. So I want to give you two things this week to do. One side of that paper, you can write this one thing down. Pray about the who is my neighbor question. What does that mean to you? As, as you watch the news, as you pass through your community, pray about the who is my neighbor question. Ask God to help you move toward the answer that Jesus would give, the one he gave on the cross. But if you're like me, you need God's help working through the stuff that might be in the way. So pray about the who is my neighbor question. Okay, then I ask you to keep one piece of that, one uh, side of that paper free. Turn it over and make a giant tic-tac-toe thing on it. Use the whole page. A giant tic-tac-toe. Some of you are looking at me and said, well, we use the other side for that already. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Make a giant tic-tac-toe thing. What I'm going to ask you to do with this is to make a neighbor list. This one's a lot easier. Uh, on that side of the paper, and you don't have to do it all now. I just want you to know what to do. I want you to put your own name in the very center square. You've got nine squares there. Put your own name in the center square. And then this is, this is a homework thing. I kind of want to tell you a little bit about our story because when I, when I read this story and have, have looked at it throughout the years, I always felt guilty about it because the word neighbor, it was easier for me to go to Brazil than it was to deal with my own neighborhood. We moved, as I said, in February 2015, and that was 20, we had spent 25 years in the same house. Now, there's a lot of turnover in Southern California. There probably is here in Colorado, too, but there was a lot of turnover in our neighborhood. But at the time that I moved, after 25 years, I knew the first name of four or five people in the whole neighborhood. I... Uh, it wasn't that I was unfriendly. I said hi. Sometimes I even got into a conversation, but most of the time I didn't know who I was talking to. I just carried it off. When you pastor for as long as I did and you shake as many people out the church, you don't always know all the names. So you learn to fake it, is what I was doing. And I don't think you can really know somebody unless you know their name, unless you start with a name and you get on that so you can say, you can say, hello, Jerry, or, or, or hello, Dan, or whatever, in, in your neighborhood. And that sparks a conversation. But when we moved in, we, we made the decision to start driving here. Well, what happened when we drove here? Well, that meant that we were Sunday morning people who pulled out and took a long drive. And we were not uh, invested in our community. It's one of the things we got to thinking about. But we were not making the friends that we needed in our own community. You know, there is a, there is a, your life isn't infinite. There is an end to your life. And we began to watch and go, what are we doing driving all the way there? Because at some point we won't be able to do that. And what do we have left here? We got to know, we got to know Frank and Jerry next door. Actually, I, I got to know them by shoveling snow. We're, uh, 
in our HOA, they cover our snow removal, but they're not fast about it. And uh, Jerry and Frank live on the north facing, they have the north facing driveway. And, and I just got scared for them that they would fall. So when the snow came, I would get out and do that early and I just started to do it. I felt like I needed to do it. It, it developed into a deeper friendship and you know, she pulled out with a tire that was losing air and I had the, I had the thing to fill the tire and get her to the place to fix it. So we got closer and we got closer. Ultimately, uh, Frank was dying. He was dying when we got there. He was in his 90s and, and had cancer. He was in his 90s, she was in her mid-80s. Uh, and the friendship got even closer. And because of that friendship, we, we were there when Frank went through the worst time, when she finally had to move him out of the house into extended care. Frank also had dementia, so he helped me learn to express why I became a pastor, because he asked me that question about every five minutes when I was with him. So I, I had multiple answers. And the wrong answer was, well, I told you before. That, I tried that once. I said, that was stupid. <laughs> that one's not going to work. But, but it came down to, it came down to uh, Frank became very critical, and his wife, Jerry, was there at the care facility with a son. And there was a, a daughter-in-law uh, who was a nurse staying in their house, and she called Terry early in the morning and said, I need a ride to the hospital. And... Uh, so Terry got up to give the ride. And I laid there for another 30 minutes feeling, man, I gotta go do something. So I went over there myself. It's the first time in 45 years of pastoring that I, when there was a death, that I wasn't early or too late. First one I was ever with as he passed away. What a, what a meaningful relationship. We have an ongoing relationship with Jerry because now she's going through extended grief and we watered her plants last week because she was, she was down sick. That relationship developed and then, then we did something else that was interesting. We got a dog, Izzy. Izzy is a little mini pincher and uh, we rescued her. She's, she was eight years old when we got her. We began to walk the neighborhood because again, we don't have a fenced yard and people began to meet the dog. And we began to talk to more people because of the dog. Then I, I happened to notice in a church that I was visiting that they were having a neighboring conference Monday and Tuesday. And I went up to a guy afterwards and talked about it. I introduced myself as a, as a retired minister, which gets some doors open. It worked there, and I got, I got a free invitation. So I went to the conference. Any conference that I can get to for free, I'll go to. Um, and in that conference, they handed out this card and talked about the value of it. It's a, it's a tic-tac-toe thing, that's all it is. Just exactly what you drew down. And they, they talked about the need to just get to know people in your own neighborhood. Not to win them to Christ, that's not the primary need. The primary need is to be a good neighbor, to build relationships so that that might happen or you might encourage a lapsed Catholic to go back to the Catholic Church or whatever, but to begin to build relationships. So we took this, we took this tech tic-tac-toe thing, we actually put it in our, in our phones and began to accumulate the names of the people that were around us. First time I've ever intentionally tried to do that. I've done it in the church all the time. Uh, 
And what I found was that when I introduced myself, immediately people said, oh, you're Izzy's dad. <laughs> yeah, the dog, the dog had gone before. In fact, we found that we learned the names of the dogs before we learned the names of the people. And, and because those stuck. But I can honestly say that at this point, after doing this for about three years, our best friends are our neighbors by a long shot. I've never had that in my whole life. I was a pastor's kid. We pulled up roots and moved all the time. And I, and I didn't develop long-running relationships with people. But I, I found an incredible blessing in that. We, we met Rick and Annette, and they were obviously Christians. In fact, I found out she'd been a choir director, and I saw the hymnals in her house and asked her about that. They were not going to a church at all. And church wasn't really the big topic. It was just being a friend. Ultimately, my, my daughter began a new church in town that, uh, that they began attending. So they, they, they found that place they wanted to go. So I got one couple that were already, I'm sure they were already believers, but they attend a church now. And we're still friends. We met Dan and Robin. Robin is, uh, you, when you, if you talked about your faith, or not your faith, but if you talked about church, Robin has a, she gives you a label when she puts her hand out like this and don't ask me anymore. Um, her husband is a, is a former Catholic Episcopalian, bitter about something that happened. So the church is not a topic with them necessarily. Friendship is a topic and we've gotten very close to them. And they, they introduced us to, to um, George and Jan, and, and we got close to George and Jan. Our next door neighbors, our absolute next door neighbors, are a couple, a very sharp couple, and, but they are very bitter. In fact, they're bitter about the church that we're currently attending, but we've gotten to be close. On this last Christmas, I invited four different couples that are, that are new to the Christmas concert that our choir was putting on, three out of the four came. And, and it was an amazing thing. I mean, they came, they, they didn't make any onward progression, a, a profession about the church. But Sunday night, they came over and we just, we got some food out and we're sitting around and they began, they just, I was sitting there dead tired from the day and they, they just began to talk about their backgrounds, how they grew up and, and even church experiences included in that. We just see amazing things. When we, when we think about our closest friends, it's the first time in my life they haven't been centered in the church, but, but out there. And I know that when we have a need, I broke my, I broke my left ankle big time uh, April the 7th, and every one of those people that we've met, I've got, I've got a list that's twice as long, I can't talk about them all. But every one of those people that we met at one time or another checked in asked us how we were doing and, and had significant help. George and Jan were, Terry called them the minute I did it, and they helped us through that time. So I have found that um, being a friend, being a neighbor, and getting names is incredibly, incredibly important. You know what, this, this story, you could go out and cruise the freeways and highways and look for people that are beaten up and battered laying next to the road. That's not the point of this story. This story is just being a neighbor, being a friend of somebody around you, close to you. Here's what I've discovered about this second commandment. If, if I'm going to love my neighbor, 
I have to be willing to be interrupted. You'll never learn to love other people unless you're willing to be interrupted. This kind of love is often inconvenient. Love takes time. Your schedule for the day or week gets all messed up when you learn to be a good Samaritan. Paul gives this advice in Galatians chapter 6.10. When we have the opportunity to help anyone, we should do it. That's the phrase, when we have the opportunity. It means that even in our interruptions, I promise you, you will have opportunities to love. God specifically brings people into our lives all the time that are in need because that's the only way you're going to learn this second great purpose of life, to love your neighbor as yourself. So when God intentionally places these people in your path, it's an opportunity for kindness and an opportunity for love. It's how we learn to participate in the adventure of loving our neighbor. Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for your extravagant kindness to us. You sent Jesus to die for us. And Father, we don't want to be uncaring or apathetic about those around us. We want to learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Please help us to do this, Lord. Now pray this in your own heart as I say the words out loud. Dear God, help me to slow down and start seeing and sensing the needs of people around me. Give me spiritual radar. Help me to be a better listener so that I can sympathize with people. When interruptions come, help me to see them as opportunities to grow in love. Help me to be willing to take risks and move against my fears in order to help others. Starting today, I want to grow in sensitivity, in sympathy, in spontaneity, and in sacrifice. And I want to show your kindness to others. I pray this in your name. Amen.